It's the most familiar poem in Ecclesiastes. Thanks in no small part to a song um, that the birds covered. To everything, turn. To, I'm not going to sing it for you, but <laughs> I know you're disappointed. Margaret is, at least. Um, if you think about time, remember when you were a kid, the school year seemed to drag and drag. And now, for some of us, we distinctly remember it being January and we sneezed and it's October. For some of you, you distinctly remember being in your 20s and you sneezed and now you're not. <laughs> if you survey pop culture, there are a variety of opinions about the subject of time. For instance, if you think about the song that the Rolling Stones covered, Time is on my side. Or, if you're uh, quoting um, some uh, pithy idioms, time flies when you're having fun, right? Or if you're Kermit the Frog, time's fun when you're having perfect. Thank you. <laughs> maybe, though, maybe... You're not, as, you're not as disposed to a chipper disposition about time. Maybe you find more resonance in the Mad Hatter from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, forever stuck at 6 o'clock because he sang a song that displeased the Queen of Hearts. Alice shows up on a perpetual tea time with he and the March Hare and the Dormouse. Days slipping away, yet somehow time standing still. Where the Hatter tells Alice that time is not an it, it's a he. And is vindictive and mean. Maybe, maybe they're the words of a little, little band that had their, their day back in the 90s from Columbia, South Carolina, Hootie and the Blowfish. Maybe their song, Time, Time, Why You Punish Me, like a wave bashing into the shore, you wash away my dreams. Time, why you walk away? Like a friend with somewhere to go, you left me crying. Can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow running free? Because tomorrow is just another day and I don't believe in time. See, no matter where you fall on the ideological spectrum, time is something that we have to deal with. 
Like every other thing that the preacher, that the teacher, that Koheleth put his wisdom to, time was one of those things. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and let's think for a few minutes this morning about time and the truths about it. Stand, if you would, as we hear God's word read. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to, be, to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Grant us, Father, that you might Pour your spirit upon us so that our ears may hear, our eyes may see, our hearts may understand. Grant us this grace, grant us this gift so that we might become more and more like Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Seated. So I want to look at Ecclesiastes, the way that we have been doing it over our study together. I want to look first at what the text says and let the weight of it. I don't want to try and, I don't want to try and tell you what the preacher should have said, meant to say, could have said. Let's talk about what he said. Let's let the weight of those words first 
hit our hearts. And then let's consider more fulsomely what the rest of the Bible says. The first thing is there's some temptations to believe certain things about time. Like time is something that we can control. Like the old expression, carpe diem, seize the day. Or carp diem, seize the fish. No. <laughs> this text would challenge that the day is yours to seize. Because if you look at it, you didn't choose your time to be born. Or did you choose your time to die? In fact, some of you are, um, some of you have lived in this country long enough to remember a time when a draft was necessary. And some of you served with honor and valor defending your country. Some of you didn't, and that wasn't of your own choosing. It was because your number didn't come up. Why didn't it come up? Because when you were born. A few years earlier or a few years later and your life would have been radically different. You see, there is this temptation to think that time is something that we can seize, that we can master, that we can control. William Ernest Henley in his poem Invictus which is the Latin for unconquered, said this. He says, it begin, his poem begins this way. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And it ends this way. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, we, we live in a time and a space and a day and an age where the days go fast. They're filled with much. And so we enter each day with this idea, this temptation that if I just seize my day, I can control what? I can control the outcome of my day because at some level we take his poem to heart that I am the captain of my soul. That's until the other things happen. A time to plant, we can understand that. A time to pluck up, we can understand that too. A time to kill, now it's starting to get a little more serious. A time to heal. Those of you that have been wounded to the point, emotionally or otherwise, that you have needed to heal, how did it go controlling the healing process? time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. See, I think that when you read this list, you see very quickly it's filled with extremes, isn't it? 
it's filled with things that, that both bring great delight and things that bring great despair. And I bet, I bet, just kind of knowing you all and knowing our collective temperaments together, there are some of you that are very positive people. You prefer things to be great. You prefer it because that's the way you are. You're a cheerful person. You're a great person. Some of you, um, some of you have figured out that I'm a more melancholy person. I know, it's a surprise. (laughs) Try and contain yourself. No matter your disposition, whether you are one that tends towards uh, delight or one that tends towards despair, where, wherever life places you, you want to go back to where you're comfortable. Does that make sense? You want to go back to where you're comfortable. And so rather than receiving the seasons of time as a gift, we push back. And we try and manipulate what's happening around us. But here's the thing that I need you to hear. Kohela's teaching in giving us this poem, the reason that it's not a carpe diem, a seize the day poem, the reason that it's not you choose your own destiny. If you're going to be happy, turn to page 37. If you want to go down a more melancholy road, go to page 40. Is because in the poem and in our lives, the seasons, the times are not ours to choose. And that is Kohela's biggest complaint. We don't choose when the time is to weep and when the time is to, hit, to heal, when the time is to tear down and the time is to build back up. These things are all determined for us. He laments. But we fight back against it, don't we? We fight back against the temptation to see that time and season are things that are determined for us and still think that time and season are things that we should be in control of. And we like to control the type of season that we're in which can make us presume things about God when we miss the heart of the Father, as I have said many times before. When we miss the heart of the Father, when we think that God is detached or disinterested or disengaged from our world as if he somehow set the wind-up toy in motion, let it go, and then went on to do other things that were more important to him, the world seems like a cruel Rube Goldberg machine just waiting to knock us down. And so if you find yourself on the misfortune, on the despairing side of life, you can presume that God has it out for you, that you've done something wrong, that you've displeased him in some way as to cause life to go ill for you. On the other hand, if life is going great, if everything is going fantastic, then you can also ill presume that you are on God's good side, that somehow you're currying blessing and favor and worth because something's gone right and you've been 
put on God's it squad. Not only can it make us lose sight of and make um, ill-informed decisions about who God is, but it can also make us make ill-informed decisions about who other people are as well. If they're successful, it's because they worked hard. If they're not successful, it's because they're lazy, right? But our lots are determined for us. That doesn't mean that we don't work hard. But what if you're not the master of your own outcome? What if you can work as hard and as diligently as possible, and yet all of your investments are in Enron? You can work as hard and as diligently as possible and still find yourself waking up one morning having had a stroke. Or you won the lottery. There's a maddening inconsistency of it all. We go to what we're comfortable with. When things are sad, we want them to be what? Happy again, if you're that type of person that wants things just to be cheerful and everyone to get along, right? And everything to be happy. So we try and move things back and tell a quick joke or say, lighten up. It's not that bad. Or maybe... Maybe, maybe Winnie the Pooh's character, Eeyore, is your spirit animal. And even if everything else is still going according to plan, that silly tail is sticking to your posterior because someone nailed it there. If you're extroverted, maybe you rush to speak. If you're introverted, maybe you rush to too much silence. We go to what we're comfortable with. And it's tempting, isn't it, to think that the lots of our days, the times and seasons in which we live, are to be either one or the other. Oh, I'm entering now into my sad season. Or, oh, now I'm entering into my happy season. When in reality, there's an intermingling, isn't there? But as Christians, we, we have been taught, I think erroneously, that the Christian life is the victorious life. The victorious life is the cheerful life. The cheerful life is the joyful life. But more about that in a minute. 
after the poem, our preacher, teacher, philosopher, gives us more. In verse 9, what gain? What gain? What profit? Now, remember, what, remember your economics. What is a profit? A profit is what you have left over after what? Everything's been paid for. You've paid your employees. You've paid for your materials. You've paid your rent. You've paid your utilities. Profit is what you have left over. And the teacher says, what gain, what profit has the worker from his toil? What do you actually walk away with, he asks. And, and then he goes in verse 10 and says almost verbatim something that he said back in chapter 1, verse 13. He says in verse 10, I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then he goes on in verse 11. So I have to disagree with the ESV's translation here in a few, a few instances. Because I think it, it does change the meaning of the verse in a way that I don't think the original Hebrew intended. Here's the first one. The first one is here in verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Okay? That word that's translated beautiful, um, a better translation, and if you're reading out of the New American Standard, it translates it out this way, um, appropriate or suitable, okay? He has made everything appropriate in its time. Do you see the difference there? Also, this next part of verse 11 when it said, I don't disagree with the translation. I disagree with the way that we want to think that it means. He has put eternity into man's heart. Okay? Now, when, when Koheleth is writing this, remember, this is, this is wisdom, uh, wisdom derived from under the sun. There is no divine revelation. There is no, um, there is no knowledge beyond the sun. This is wisdom under the sun. So when it says he has put eternity into the hearts of man, this is not to be read, I don't believe, as an understanding there's going to be a heaven, a hell, a reckoning, a judgment. Um, this is not Pascal's God-shaped vacuum, okay? Here's what it is. It is a lingering, it is a knowledge that there is a God, God is at work, God has been, been at work before you were alive, God will be at work after you die, and yet, and this is where he clarifies what he means in verse 11, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Basically, he says, he's put enough knowledge in you to know that there is a God, but he hasn't given you the answer to why God does what he does. Does that make sense? And then in verses 13 through 14, well, starting verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they lived, right? We don't know why this is happening. Eat, drink, and be merry. Listen to how Eugene Peterson renders this out. 
but he's left us in the dark so that we can never know what God is up to, whether he's coming or going. I've decided that there's nothing better to do than to go, and ha- go ahead and have a good time and get the most we can out of life. That's it. Eat, drink, and make the most of your job. That's God's gift to you. He's not a very cheerful teacher. Do you understand now why in the very first sermon I said that the the preacher in Ecclesiastes is like the tour guide in Poland taking you into Auschwitz who has seen the maddening inconsistency and the dread and the disappointment of the world and carries with his voice the gravitas and the weight of someone who has truly had to wrestle through all that he has seen and experienced. Because there is, in fact, eternity set on the hearts of everyone. There is, in fact, this wound where we know, and C.S. Lewis gets at this in his writings, that if, if, if you were, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it written down, if you are living where, where it, nothing in this world can satisfy you, does it stand to reason then that you were perhaps made for another world? Because we all have within us the wound of Eden. The wound of Eden wherein we walked, we fellowshiped, we experienced, we experienced life with God and life with one another that was not corrupt. There was no need to worry about what the days would have laid out for you because there was no sin to corrupt the days. And this is where the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is incomplete. Because if you look to Ecclesiastes alone, you can never answer the question, is life misery or is life a gift? The teacher's going to shrug his shoulders and say it's a little bit of both, I guess. But what is it? If all that is of life is what is here under the sun, make the most of it. This is the wisdom that the preacher can offer us. But if there is more than that, if there is a God who is at work and who is intentional about his work and brings about complexity, not because he is cruel, but because he is moving his good creation towards its redemptive consummation, then we need to think instead about some of the truth of time. First of all, can the Christian life, can the proper Christian life be a life that has in it both the poles of delight and despair and those be experienced at the same time? You need look no other place than to look at Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant who who was to come, it says of of the one who would come that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yes? And yet over in Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and your joy may be full. He is both the man of sorrows and yet at the same time also the one who has joy overflowing and offers that to his people. Paul would later say about Christians in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he would say this, that Christians are as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. There's dichotomy there, isn't there? There's both despair and delight running around in the same sphere, in the same place, We are invited as followers of Christ to know God, not just as the God of the machine, but the God who has personally revealed himself and is intimately involved with all matters of our time and space. As as one philosopher states it, we cannot talk about our lives, ourselves, what we desire or fear or what surrounds us without reference to time. Do you realize, friends, that for each of us, no matter who you are, no matter what state uh, in life you find yourself, we all have one thing in common. Though we have different numbers in our bank accounts and hairs on our head and life experiences, one fact remains, we each have the same 24 hours in a day. We each enjoy the same 365 days and a quarter around the sun. The reason Ecclesiastes is such a wonderful modern apologetic is because in in many instances, this is where we find our solidarity with all of our neighbors. Your neighbor wrestles with the same questions about time as we do. I love what Zach S. Wine said in his book on Ecclesiastes on this particular point. He says this, he says, some of our neighbors will feel that all I have is time. Some will cherish this feeling while others will struggle to overcome boredom in order to feel useful. Others of our neighbors will feel awe or loss. Where did the time go? Or frustrated fatigue. There aren't enough hours in the day. Or purposed urgency, I have to make the most of my time. Or grateful anticipation, I've been waiting for this time to come. Or painful regret, I've wasted all those years. Or restless waiting, when will my time come? Or cautious fear, I don't want this time to arrive. Or wonderful memory. Do you remember that time? You see, friends, um, God is the orchestrator of all things. There will be in the times and seasons of our life both delight and despair. Um, I love this quote that I read by Johnny Erickson Tata uh, where she said this, Sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. You see, it's only maddening that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and we can't see what he has done or will yet do 
It's only maddening if we're supposed to be the ones in control, if God is maniacal rather than merciful, if God is, um, if God is distant and aloof rather than connected and, and careful and covenantly revealed with his people. It only matters to see the road if you don't trust the one driving. We have to be prepared for all of the seasons of life. We have to be prepared for all of the seasons of life and to be able to respond accordingly. Not to, not to try and control the seasons as if to say that, that sorrow has no place because Jesus was the man of sorrows, nor to say that joy has no place because Jesus said, I am speaking to you that your joy may be full. It's that we should respond and react accordingly when we find ourselves in the various seasons of life. You've experienced this week, no doubt, that there's a bit of a chill, a bit of a chill, a tiny bit of a chill. There's a chill coming tomorrow, um, just heads up. But a little bit of a chill in the morning when you leave your house. What do you do? It's time to put on warmer clothing. It's not time to go out and work on your tan. We respond and react accordingly to the seasons that God has appointed for us. We all have seasons that we prefer. Some of us want the happy time or the sad time. But the dance of redemption is to take the times as they are given, both the celebratory and the tragic, as gifts. How, how do we do that? Well, first of all, I want to contend with you that you don't possess the wisdom necessary to be able to do this. You don't. You don't possess the wisdom necessary to be able to do this. That is why you are dependent on the wisdom that God alone can provide. We must be apprenticed by God through his spirit to depend daily, moment by moment, to know these seasons and to know that Jesus is the one who is with us in all of these seasons. A man of sorrow acquainted with grief who came to bring light and life to all those who would seek him. Whether we, whether we are being brought low or abounding with delight, we know that Jesus is there with us. We cannot control the time that we are given. We cannot predict the delights that will come, nor can we control the despairs when they arrive. There is, a fa there is in fact, the reality that we must live in gratitude in each moment. For each moment, whatever they possess is a gift. Because in each moment, God is present and among us and with us. Do you hear that? God has not abandoned you in your grief, nor has God somehow said, well, don't you deserve an extra gold star today? Every delightful and despairing moment under the sun has been fitted by God for his purposes. 
with God, everything fits. Nothing is wasted or lost. Again, um, Dr. Eswine is helpful here. He says, our response to our lot amid these varying seasons is not robotic or staged. God intended that in our lots, we would experience a full range of emotional expression. For those who refuse to cry, surrender to God is something that must wisely be learned. For there is a time to weep. Sometimes under the sun, tears are the only appropriate and God-given response that a human being can muster. For those who resist laughter, apprenticeship with God will knock the crust off of your closed heart and disciple you into cheek muscles that pull upward and eyebrows that rise. Laughter and weeping are gifts of God for the seasons that ramble through our lives. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people may fear him. The Apostle Paul reminds us in his letter to the Galatians that at just the right time, God sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. If you trace throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus said, my time has not yet come until his time had come. When all was said and done, when his time had finally arrived, he entered into a season of being cut down so that we would be raised up. Dear friends, with God, everything fits. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. You are not the captain of your soul. Instead, your captain of the faith, Jesus, is the one that attends to your soul, has ransomed your soul, and at just the right time will resurrect your body, uniting it with its soul and making all things new. And when that day comes, indeed, we will have all the time in the world.